Well, we want to we want to take just a, a couple minutes here at the start of our our service this morning to talk about what our involvement is going to look like in the Houston area. You've heard us kind of mention that or allude to that. Um, we want to give that a little bit more definition this morning. Um, we're going to be partnering with a church in an area kind of on the north eastern side of Houston uh, that's called Kingwood. It's a, a suburban area. Uh, and the church there that we're going to be working with is Kingwood United Methodist Church. Uh, Kingwood is a community that's similar to the Northland in that uh, it is predominantly uh, upper middle class. Um, a lot of the areas uh, appear to be a little bit more affluent, but there are definite pockets of great need. And unfortunately, the way that uh, that area is kind of set up, the, the uh, less affluent uh, areas of town are what got hit hardest by some of the flooding. Uh, some of those less affluent areas are near what is uh, the San Jacinta River, which cuts through uh, Houston. And the way the flooding worked on the northern side of, of the city is that when the rain stopped, finally, uh, they thought that they had come out un, unharmed. Um, a lot of the flooding hadn't, hadn't happened up there the way it did in, in southern portions of the city. But city officials made a decision, a couple of levees north of Houston were about to break, and they made a decision to open those, and they gave people in, in kind of the northern suburbs about 24 hours worth of heads up that the water was coming, and uh, when it arrived that there would be a lot of it, and that's what happened. And so it was actually like 24 hours after the rain stopped that the flooding moved into those areas when they released those levees so that they wouldn't burst. And... Um, 80% of people that got flooded didn't have flood insurance because they didn't live in a floodplain. And so they are forced to try to rebuild their homes and their uh, lives based off what's in the savings account and what small check they might get from FEMA or other federal uh, agencies. And so what Kingwood United Methodist is doing, they've already been very involved in helping people gut their homes. Um, that needs like three to five weeks to dry. It's been about 10, 10 days since then. So it still needs some time in order to dry out. Um, but they are in the process of identifying homes and families that didn't have flood insurance, and don't have the means uh, probably to pay for the rebuild inside their home as well as uh, restarting their life in terms of their stuff and appliances and furniture and those kinds of things. And as they do that, they're going to let us know a couple of families that we can adopt as a church and um, support both materially, financially, but also physically going down and helping rebuild inside their houses and helping them restock on um, everything that they lost. And so that is how we'll come alongside them. We're in the waiting process in terms of finding out who those families are going to be and exactly what kind of help they're going to need. And so um, as soon as we have information about that, we will pass that along, but we ask that you be thinking about and praying about how it is that you could possibly be involved there. Um, if there's a need to go on trips and you're interested in that, um, to go down and rebuild and, and you're handy and can do those kinds of things, I promise I won't go on those trips because I will do more damage than good. You don't want me to try to build things. Um, but if it's giving toward us helping get the supplies, the sheetrocking and the drywall and the insulation and whatnot needed for the inside of the home, or if it's helping us provide um, more kind of basic life stuff for them, uh, be thinking about that. That's how we're going to be involved. Um, I've had some people ask if we're going to do similarly in the kind of southern Florida 
uh, southwestern Florida area. Uh, we're not, and the reason is not because we don't care about what happened there. It's just that we can't do everything, and so we've had to, to pick a spot and try to be involved there and pray that other churches around the nation would do the same in other areas. And so we can't help all of Houston, but we can help in a specific area. And so that's what we're going to do, and we're praying that other churches would do likewise from around the nation and, and try to help out in both of those areas of need. And so we're going to take a minute and pray over that this morning, and then we'll jump into John chapter 10, which is where we're going to be for the rest of our time. So if you'll join me in prayer. God, thank you uh, for the, the truth that nothing happens that is... Uh, that you are unaware of. Nothing happens that catches you off guard, Lord. You are able to display yourself and your greatness and your glory even in the middle of our hardship. And Lord, we trust that. Uh, but at the same time, we weep with those who weep and we mourn with those who mourn in places like Houston and in Florida. And God, uh, we want to be the hands and feet of Christ to those individuals, to come alongside them to help bring the light and life of Jesus into the brokenness of their current situation, to bring hope into places that feel uh, momentarily hopeless. Uh, God, we want to be able to bring physical relief to them, but also to bring spiritual refreshment and uh, emotional support. And so, God, we pray for... Um, the families that will get to come alongside, we don't know who they are, but you do. We don't know exactly what they're going to need, but you do. And uh, Lord, we eagerly await the opportunity to, uh, to help them. God, to not only help them rebuild their lives, but also to share the hope of Jesus with them. Um, God, we pray for the church worldwide, uh, that others would rise up and do the same for brothers and sisters in a different part of the world, in a different part of the nation, that as agencies and churches uh, and ministry organizations go into those places, that uh, you would draw people to yourself in the midst of that. God, would we be uh, faithful and obedient, tools in your hand as you go about displaying the reality of Jesus in the midst of uh, these challenging circumstances. Uh, God, thank you for your son. Uh, for the opportunity to be used by him uh, to bring the message of the gospel and a message of hope to those who need it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in John chapter 10 this morning. It's our third of four weeks in the gospel of John. Last week we talked about miracles. Uh, the week before that we kind of talked about uh, mission and sharing and what does it mean that the word became flesh and what does it look like for us to share that with the world. Uh, today all about the identity of Christ. And the Gospel of John is a great place to study that because John, the author, is explicitly answering the question, who was Jesus? And in the Gospel of John, there are some very explicit, uh, explosive statements from Christ about who he was out of his own mouth. In fact, so much so that the reason that Jesus ultimately ends up being arrested and crucified is not just because he's broken some of Jewish law. He's healed on the Sabbath and some of the other things like that he does that anger the Pharisees. It's ultimately, they make that decision because he claims equality with God. They say he's, he's being blasphemous. He is saying that he can forgive sin, that he is one with the Father. He's calling himself God. And for that, we need to not just silence him, we need to put him to death. 
And so it's the, state, the kind of statements that we're going to look at today that ultimately lead to Jesus' uh, demise, that ultimately lead to his arrest and his crucifixion. There is a, a segment of theological study that is devoted to who Jesus is. It's called Christology. It is all about the person and nature and role and work of Jesus Christ. And um, there are 12 statements up there that are truths about who Jesus is that we get out of Scripture. But there are a lot of ways you can come at the study of Jesus. One of them is a just purely historical kind of fashion. We are, uh, by nature, I think increasingly a skeptical society you see something on the internet or even on a, a news station, and we instantly go into uh, like our own version of skeptical fact-checking mode. Well, who said that? Where did it come from? What were the sources? What were the biases? That's kind of how we're wired in, in, to increasing measure as we continue to progress forward as a society. I think one of the most important things that anyone can do, believer or non-believer, is think hard about who Jesus is. Investigate what he has to say about himself. Try to figure out, is he everything that he claims to be, or is he not? Is he the son of God? Is he eternal? Is he fully God, fully man? Is he sinless? Was he the fulfillment of the law? All of those things. It's important to do that. There are some who look at just Jesus of Nazareth, the individual, the man. Did he exist? Uh, they give their lives to that field of study. And without taking a ton of time, uh, one of the important ways that scholars do that is they gather as many original source documents as they possibly can. And they take all of those and they combine them together and they say, what do these say about any individual? So for example, there are five primary source documents, ancient documents that are used to build out the profile of the life of Alexander the Great. The most prominent of those was written by Plutarch 400 years after Alexander the Great died. That's the most comprehensive biography we have about the life and military career of Alexander the Great. Five sources, the, the big one 400 years after his death. Well, within 150 years of Jesus' death, there were 42 different authors who had written about the life of Jesus, nine of them being non-Jewish, non-Christian individuals. And yet... The most would wholesale accept the realities presented about Alexander the Great. Many question the realities presented about Jesus Christ. Did he even exist? Was there ever even a man named Jesus? Most scholars would agree, even very secular ones, that yes, Jesus did exist. In fact, C.S. Lewis, who for much of his life was a skeptic um, before being converted, placing his faith in Jesus Christ. He said the following, as a literary historian, I am convinced that the Gospels are not legends, that within them are the truth of Jesus Christ. There's another way you can come at the study of Jesus. That's to take the entirety of the Bible and say to yourself, what does all of this, Old Testament, Gospels, New Testament, what does it say about who Jesus was? And there's a lot in all sections of Scripture about who the Messiah would be. In the Gospels, about portraits of who Jesus was. In the uh, New Testament epistles and letters, there are truths about what that means and reflecting backward. In fact, within five years after Jesus' death, there were a number of church creeds and statements about the crucifixion and the fact of the resurrection that began being disseminated within the early church. 
And finally, most importantly for us this morning, you can come at this whole field of study by just saying, what does Jesus say about himself? Let's just look at the words of the man himself out of his own mouth. Many would say, many who are skeptical would say, I believe that a Jesus of Nazareth existed, and I believe that he was a great teacher. And so with that in mind, you would have to be willing to say, okay, if you believe that Jesus was a great teacher, how do you square with the teachings about himself? How do you say, I think this guy was a a phenomenal teacher morally. I think he was a great teacher in terms of the way he did that. Okay, well then how do you deal with the fact that he makes some claims about himself that if he were a great teacher, you would have to reconcile with? In fact, if you just looked at the words of Jesus themselves. You took everything else out of your Bible except for what is in red. And you read those beginning to end. You would have heard the following truths about Jesus. That he was the Son of God. That he had, has, and always will have eternal, perfect communion and relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That he was sent to earth in order to seek and save the lost. That he died in order to pay the price for sin. That he, wrote, that he was going to rise again in order to defeat the power of sin and death. That salvation and eternal life with God are available only through him and that he's coming back again. If you only read the words of Jesus, you would see him state all of those truths. I say all that to say this. If you took only the words of Jesus, you would have everything you need to know in order to be confident that Jesus is the only means by which we are saved. If you took only the words of Jesus you would have that. There's a popular uh, story illustration that circles in missions type uh, environments among missionaries. And it is about a missionary who's doing work in a cross-cultural setting and he's out on the streets one day doing some evangelism and he happens upon a man and they begin a conversation. And the missionary is using a New Testament, small New Testament version in order to have a conversation with this guy. And the guy stops him in the middle and says, you know what that paper would be great for? Rolling cigarettes. And the missionary is kind of taken aback, and they go back and forth a little bit. And finally, the missionary says, you know what? I'll make you a deal. I'll give you this New Testament and all of its great cigarette paper. If you promise me that before you smoke or roll or smoke a cigarette, you will read that page. And the man says, okay, sure. The missionary says, let me be, let me be clear. I'm going to give you this, but you promise that before you roll a cigarette, you'll read that page. And the guy says, yes, I promise you that. So he gives them the New Testament, and they go separate ways. And sometime later, he happens upon the man again. And he asks him, did you keep your side of the, of the bargain? And the man says, well, actually, yes, I smoked my way through Matthew. <laughs> and then I smoked my way all the way through Mark. And I smoked through Luke, and I started to smoke through John. But I got to John chapter 3, and I realized that this guy Jesus had something that I need. That salvation was through him. And the missionary prayed with him right there to receive Christ. All that guy needed were the Gospels. Jesus' words about himself. To understand that he was sinful. And that God had sent a Savior, the person Jesus Christ, to save him from his sin. That's all he needed. What you believe about Jesus matters immensely. It matters immensely because what you believe about Jesus dictates 
whether or not you understand that he is the means to eternal life. If you are a believer, what you believe about Jesus paints you a picture of what you are being conformed to. Sanctification is the process of being molded into the image of Jesus. So what you know of and believe about Jesus gives you the picture of where your life's sanctification process ought to be headed. That's why it matters. That's why it's more than just kind of theological gibberish or some sort of scholarly mumbo-jumbo to talk about who Jesus was. No, it matters for all of humanity. And in the Gospel of John, there are seven statements that Jesus himself makes. They're called the seven I am statements of Jesus. They kind of hearken back to Exodus 3.13 where Jesus, or where God says to Moses, I am who I am. Each of the statements begins with Jesus saying, I am fill in the blank. And then he goes on to explain it. Here are the seven of them. Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. In John uh, chapters 8 and 9, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. He also says, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in John 15, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And each of those carries important implications for the life of all human beings, believers and non-believers alike. And that is because they give essential information about the irreducible nature of Jesus Christ. Who is he at his core? What is he? Why did he come? What is he doing with his life? If you're here this morning and you would put yourself in the intellectually skeptical category, there's nothing more important that you could take up with your life than the act of figuring out whether or not these statements of Jesus are true. You see them, you hear them. What do you do with those? Are they factual or not? So we're going to look at two of these in closer uh, depth this morning. I'm going to read John chapter 10, verses 1 to 21, where Jesus calls himself the door of the sheep and the good shepherd. And we're going to talk about exactly what that means for us. Here's what John 10, 1 to 21 says. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep heed his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was trying to say to them. So Jesus again said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before, or who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he, hired, he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd." For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He is a demon and insane. Why listen to him? And others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The passage splits into three basic parts. That's how we're going to work through it. The first is an illustration about a sheepfold and some sheep that are inside and a shepherd and there's a gatekeeper. Then Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. That's the second passage. That's like 7 to 10. And then in verses 11 to 18, he says, I am the good shepherd. We're just going to walk through each of those and talk about kind of the implications of these two statements that Jesus makes. The whole illustration is about access. Who has access to the sheep? Jesus paints the picture of a sheepfold that would have been in a Palestinian city. Oftentimes, shepherds would be out with their sheep and they would come back into town, whether to sell them or to reload on supplies or whatever, and they would take their sheep to a communal sheepfold. It was usually formed by buildings that would kind of touch and create a courtyard in the middle, and there would be a small door in and out of the sheepfold. Multiple shepherds would put their sheep into the same place. The only way you could get in was through this hired gatekeeper who knew the shepherds of each of the flocks. And they would come and the, shepherd, or the gatekeeper would let the shepherd in and they would be able to call their own flock out. That's what the illustration tells us. And the illustration ends and Jesus begins making statements about himself. The little story makes it clear that the only people who have access to the sheep are the shepherds. And that the sheep then grant that access, if you will, by knowing and hearing the shepherd's voice. A gatekeeper lets the shepherd in, he begins to speak, and the sheep follow him. Jesus follows that up by saying, I am the door. I'm not just the shepherd, I'm actually the door. I am the doorway of access to God. That's what Jesus is saying. He's making a claim of exclusivity. One way in and out of a sheepfold. Jesus says there's one way in and out of the Father's flock. There's one way in and out of the family of God. And I am that way. It's a similar statement to what he says in John 14, which is probably the most recognizable of his I am statements. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no access to right relationship with the Lord by any other means than Jesus. He is the doorway. Sin has separated all of humanity from God, and there's only one way in which those two parties are reconciled. And we have been talking about that since we started looking at the Bible and and walking through the story of Scripture back in January. That we are not saved by our obedience to the law. We're not saved by showing up at the temple or the church. We're not saved by a priest or a prophet or a king or a judge. You're not saved because your family was Christian. You're not saved because you come and listen to me blabber on Sunday mornings. You're saved because you have access through the blood of Jesus Christ to a relationship with the Father. And you place your faith in that. Access. Jesus says, I'm the only way. But there's more to that. Because as the door, Jesus offers eternal protection. That's what verse 10 is all about. The thief thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Once you have stepped through that doorway of access by faith in Jesus Christ, nothing can steal you away. 
No amount of threat can ultimately, eternally overtake you. Nothing can come upon you except that which Jesus, the door, allows in. Talk more about that here in a few minutes. The logical question is, how do I know if I've gained access through the doorway? Well, Jesus tells us. You know because you would hear the shepherd's voice and recognize it and respond to it. There's a beautiful picture kind of tucked into the illustration up here. Jump back up to verse 3. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Palestinian shepherds would name all of their sheep, usually based off a distinctive characteristic. So there's one with black ears. That one would be called black ears. There's one with a long snout. He's long snout. One's got a lot of wool. He's fluffy, right? They've got names. In fact, uh, I would imagine that any other shepherd takes a look at someone else's sheep and they would be hard to differentiate. There's a woman in our church who owns chickens and I saw her chicken coop not too long ago and I'm looking at the chickens and talking to someone else and I said, do the chickens have names? And the guy that I was with said, oh yeah, they have names. They all looked the same to me. All the, there were like eight, six chickens in there and I'm thinking, how do you differentiate the chickens? Well, it's because you know them intimately. That's how the shepherd knows a sheep. That's how he could walk into a sheepfold with a bunch of other flocks and start calling his out by name. We talked last week about the precious reality that God is personal, that he knows you intimately. All of your past with its hurts and failures, all of your present with its hang-ups and unfulfilled longings, your future with its hopes and unknowns and anxieties. He knows your idiosyncrasies and quirks and flaws, but he also knows your strengths and gifts and abilities. Jump down to verse 14. How intimately does Jesus know you? He knows you this intimately. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus has had perfect, eternal relationship with the Father. And as well as he knows the Father, he knows you. That's how intimately. And so over the course of this week, as I've been thinking about this message, I can't help but think to myself, Jesus in heaven looking down at me, probably thinking to himself, hey, there's old talks before he thinks. He's hilarious. (laughs) Just watch him for a day. He'll say something real dumb because he didn't think about it. That's who he is. But I love him. And I know him intimately and I know him personally and I love him so much, I lay my life down for him. Jesus offers protection as the doorway. He's not only the means by which we step into faith, he's also the protector once we're part of the flock. He's not only the means by which we enter into the family, he's also the guardian of the family. And if I'm part of the flock, then I know when he speaks and I hear it and I respond to him. Jesus goes on because it's not just that he's the doorway, he's something more than that. And so he says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As the good shepherd, Jesus gave his life so that we might have life. There are four times from verses 11 down to 18 where Jesus states 
that he lays his life down. Verses 11, 15, 17, and 18. He's being overwhelmingly clear that as the good shepherd, he is not only going to have his life taken, he's going to give it. That that is the heart of the good shepherd. So in the garden, Jesus is not captured and taken prisoner while he's praying. He surrenders willingly. When he's standing trial numerous times, he is not convicted against his will. He is silent on purpose. When he hangs on the cross, he is not wrongly put to death as some sort of criminal. He is voluntarily laying down his life for the sheep. That's who the good shepherd is. That's the heart of the good shepherd toward his flock. At any one of those moments, he could have called down an army of angels, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't is because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And salvation is going to come through him. And that means he knows that he must, on the cross, pay the price for sin. And so he is willingly, voluntarily headed in that direction. I'm going to say this like three different ways. Because if you get nothing else out of this morning, I hope this is the truth that you walk away with. That Jesus abandoned his life so that you could have abundant life. That Jesus laid down his life so that you could live life to the full. That Jesus sacrificed everything so that you could be satisfied in him in all things. He gave it. He gave his life so that you could have life. Abundant life is about one thing and about one thing only. It's about having Jesus and knowing that Jesus has you. Because as the door, he offered protection. But as the good shepherd, he offers provision, eternal provision. Jesus says that he is the bread of life. He sustains us daily. He calls himself the true vine, that through which all life grows. What qualification do you need to obtain all of this? Is it that you need to be some sort of really brilliant sheep or a particularly beautiful sheep or you need to be some sort of really energetic sheep or whatever the case might be? No. The only qualification is that you place your faith in the shepherd. And you go where he leads knowing that he knows what's best for you. He is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for us and then offers us eternal provision. What's the implication of that, Tim? What do I do with this message? I'm not a, maybe you're here and you're not a skeptic. You believe in who Jesus is, but what do you do with something like this? Well, I want to read to you something this morning as we kind of wrap up. We talked all throughout the Old Testament that everything in the Old Testament anticipates Jesus and ultimately is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So I want to read to you Psalm 23 this morning. It's one of the most popular psalms uh, in the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's Psalm 23. But I want to read it with with a substitution. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the shepherd imagery all throughout the Bible. He is the good shepherd. So you could, as a believer, pray at all times, in all situations, the following way. Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. Jesus restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's 
sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Jesus is with me. His rod and staff, they comfort me. Jesus prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Jesus forever. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've stepped through the doorway, then the good shepherd is leading you and providing for you at all times. Which means no matter what pasture you might find yourself in at any given uh, season of life, you can say to yourself confidently that the good shepherd led me here. And there is protection and there is provision. There's growth and righteousness. There's opportunity to glorify him. Jesus, you brought me here for my good and for the sake of your name. And because of that, I will trust you. No matter what your current season of life looks like, you may be in something right now where you look around and you say, this pasture looks a little bit brown, but that one over there looks pretty green. Or you might say, these waters look a little bit turbulent, but those waters over there, now those are the calm waters. But if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then there is provision and he is saying to you, this pasture is where I want you to lay down. This stream is the stream I want you to drink from. You can trust me. How do you know that? Because I gave my life for you. As the door, Jesus offers protection. He also offers the only means into relationship. And as the good shepherd, he offers provision. Those are from the words of his own mouth. He is the great I am. He is the great I am. If you're here this morning and maybe you would classify yourself as a little bit intellectually skeptical, I cannot encourage you enough to investigate the claims of Jesus. You could do that from a historical approach or you could just do it from the very words of himself. Are they true or are they not? And if you're here this morning and you're not intellectually skeptical, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then hear me from the bottom of my pastor's heart say to you, you can trust the pasture that you're in. You can trust it. It might not be pleasant. It might be difficult for a season, but the good shepherd led you there, and there's a reason for it. It might be your own growth and righteousness. It might be that there's an opportunity to shine the light of the gospel in that place that brings glory to the Lord that he could not get from your life in any other way than this particular season. You can trust him because he's good, because he always provides. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life, the only means by which we are saved, the access to a right relationship with you. God, thank you that he is the good shepherd, that at all times we can hear his voice and know it and trust him and follow him where he leads. That to the very core of who we are. We can trust and believe that at all times He leads us into green pastures and by still waters for His name's sake. God, would you help our hearts to trust that? Would you help our ears and our mind and our eyes to see the shepherd, to hear His voice and to follow Him where He leads? 
God, for those here who maybe haven't placed their faith in you or would maybe place themselves in the skeptical category, Lord, I pray that you would move them to investigate the claims of Jesus, the identity of Christ, and that along the way you would reveal yourself to them to be the only means by which we are saved and the ultimate means of provision for all of our life. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. That's all. There's a sporting event on TV that some of you probably want to go watch. Enjoy. And see you next week.